As I sit down to record this episode, it is now June of 2022. That means, as of this recording, this podcast that you are hopefully enjoying has been running two full years and a little less than four months. And if you were to listen to every single released episode back to back, it would take a little over two days to get through. And I don't even want to count how many thousands of words the scripts I've written now equal. Also, at the time of me writing this, we have just over 600 subscribers across Apple Podcast and Google Podcast, with maybe a dozen or so more split among Spotify, Stitcher, and all the other podcasting apps out there. I bring all this up for a very important reason. As you may have noticed when you queued up this episode to listen to it, we have reached one of those milestones that we as humans love to imbue with special significance. Today is the show's 100th episode, which is making my mind reel just a bit. As I've shared before, this podcast began years ago as an inkling at the back of my brain to try my hand at history podcasting after finding and falling in love with the genre. And it was August 20th, 2017, the day before the great solar eclipse that year, that I was struck with a bolt of inspiration to make a podcast about the history of my home state. Three years of hemming, hawing, and research later, the very first episode was released on February 10th, 2020, little knowing what the rest of that year would have in store for us. Or, for that matter, knowing what this podcast had in store for me. I started with a handful of notes, some general history books, and a vague concept of how I wanted the story of Arizona to unfold. Since then, I have invested in nearly 40 different history books, with the caveat that's only 40 books so far, the notes have taken the form of a rainbow of tabs stuck into said books, and the outline was completely blown out of the water within the first 10 episodes. But I love it. I love sharing what I learned with all of you, and I love the interactions I've had with some of you via email and social media. So for the 600 or so of you that come around every week looking to learn something new about Arizona, Thank you so much for helping us go on this journey together. And I hope you tell all your fellow history nerd friends about this podcast that you have helped reach 100 episodes. It's a great privilege to broadcast to all of you every week and to say, I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 100, A Great Joke. Welcome back, everyone. Last week, after patiently waiting for months, Crook was able to finally claim some sort of victory as more of the Chiricahua Apache that had stayed down in Mexico finally came into San Carlos. The victory wasn't complete, however, as Geronimo was, for the moment, still south of the border, waiting for word from his son about the actual conditions at San Carlos, and if he was in danger of being locked up again. The memory of John Clum's harsh treatment hadn't diminished in the past five and a half years. And Geronimo was still in good company. He was one of 90 Chiricahua still down in Mexico, including the chief known as Chato. And only when they came in, could Crook really claim the job was done. 
But for now, he decided the time was right for a tour of the reservation and Fort Apache to see how all the various bands were getting along. In the reports that he was receiving, they were doing great. Crook had allowed the White Mountain Apache to return to their homelands near Fort Apache the previous fall. Since then, they had become prosperous farmers, growing corn, vegetables, and melons to the point where they had actually stopped accepting government rations. This was encouraging because the White Mountain Bands were closer to the Chiricahua than the other Western Apache, and it was hoped they could learn from the example of the White Mountain Bands. While on this tour, he received the good news of first Nightshay arriving at San Carlos, followed by the rest of the Chiricahua that we talked about last week. So Crook seized on the opportunity to pass the good news to Washington, while also taking the chance to rebuke his main critics, especially the local press, who he blamed on stirring up ill feelings against him and the Apache. And though there is much I admire about Crook, I won't hesitate to say that he took things a step too far and blamed the press and the reporting as the reason it had taken so long for the rest of the Chiricahua to come in. According to the general, several groups had tried to come during the first couple months since his return, but they had been scared off by their interactions with Americans who passed along the false claims they read in newspapers. This is actually complete bunk, and we know this because when Crook asked Captain Crawford at San Carlos to find an Apache, just somebody, to back up this story, he was unable to do it which he naturally did not include in his report to his superiors. But while he was busy patting himself on the back, Crook's men were dealing with settling these new arrivals and making sure everything remained peaceful. These efforts would meet resistance in the form of a young Apache chief by the name of Kaitene, or at least that's how I'm going to pronounce it. The other Cherokee leaders, like Naiche and Chihuahua, had been at San Carlos before. They knew the drill. But Kaitene claimed that he was a quote-unquote Mexican Indian who had never been on a reservation before. Historian Edwin R. Sweeney says that this probably means that he had never been at San Carlos, but he might have been at Ojo Caliente in New Mexico before that reservation had fallen apart and Victorio had taken the Cheheni on a revenge spree. From the get-go, Captain Crawford was wary of Kaitene. The young chief was, well, young and headstrong. Crawford described him as both the, quote, worst of the outfit, very independent and surly, end quote, and a, quote, shrewd Indian who will need watching, end quote. It's probable that Kaitene thought that living on a reservation and becoming a farmer was just not the life for a fighting Chiricahua chief. So, just like a teenager with a bad attitude, he was always testing just how far he could take things without bringing the authorities down on him. And at the same time, Crawford was also trying to be diplomatic in an attempt to find the still-presumed-to-be-missing Charlie McComas. And I know, I know, I keep bringing the boy up in his eventual fate, but you have to remember that from the U.S. perspective, it had been less than a year since his kidnapping— and Crook got reports during his Mexican expedition that the boy had been alive like yesterday. There was still hope of finding the six-year-old and bringing him back to his family. In brief, 
Captain Crawford was trying to get the Chiricahua to turn over any white or Mexican captives that they had, something that Kaitene refused to do until Mexico had let go of the Chiricahua captives they had. And Crawford just couldn't go in and take the boys out of a fear that being so heavy-handed would lead the Chiricahua to break out again or that it would convince Chapo to tell his father Geronimo not to come in. Some tense negotiating followed, with Crawford honing in on a white boy that Kaitene's brother had. But when it turned out that it wasn't Charlie McComas and the boy only spoke Apache, they let him stay with the tribe. This minor crisis over, and with the end of the year quickly coming on, Crawford was still concerned about what Kaitene might be up to. So much so that he decided to have the Chiricahua stay at the agency headquarters on San Carlos over the winter of 1883-84, though many were eager to head up toward Fort Apache and try farming, much like the White Mountain Bands. Lieutenant Britton Davis recalled that Kaitene, quote, made no effort to get on friendly terms with us, end quote. And Davis was about to have a lot more run-ins with this new bad boy on the reservation. But more of that next week. At this point, things would get even more complicated as the regularly absentee Indian agent Philip P. Wilcox again decided to stick his nose into things. Wilcox had just returned from Washington, and it was known that while there, he had been asking his bosses for permission to punish a handful of the Chiricahua leaders for their past misdeeds, which was a drum that the Americans just keep on beating. Crawford was doing his best to calm their concerns, but he realized that earning the Chiricahua's trust was going to be an agonizing process. Most felt that Crook and Crawford were the only ones looking after their best interests and just wouldn't trust any other Americans. Crawford would write to the general that the Chiricahua felt, quote, all the white people living on the outside of the reservation were down on them, and that the agent here and all his employees were down on them, end quote. The captain was smart enough to know that if Wilcox got his way with punishing Chiricahua chiefs, it would completely undermine everything Crook had accomplished. He would write that if the agent wanted them punished, it should be done without any military approval or support, so that any blowback would be exclusively on Wilcox. And these weren't the only headaches revolving around the agent. In August 1883, about a month after the showdown in Washington, where responsibility for the Apache had been split between the Army and the Interior Department, Wilcox had given an interview to a Denver newspaper, of course it would be a Denver paper, where he took full credit for all the improvements happening at San Carlos. This wrinkled Crawford, who usually couldn't care less, because he saw exactly how little the agent did when he was actually at his post. And by September, Wilcox was complaining again, asking Henry Teller, the U.S. Secretary for the Interior, to tear up the dual power agreement, saying that it gave Crawford too much control over things. The fundamental problem was that Wilcox could see that he had no degree of control over the Apache on the reservation. More and more, the Chiricahua went to Crawford and the Army when they had issues, even if some of them should have been handled by the agency. And admittedly, Crawford should have remanded some cases to Wilcox as they were his jurisdiction. But come on, everyone knew nothing would get done that way. 
Wilcox made zero efforts to really build trust with the Apache and seemed more content to either leave the reservation or count the money that came in from his son-in-law, the reservation's sole trader. Crawford would have several dust-ups at the end of 1883 over the pettiest little things. The first was when Wilcox was selecting Apache children to be sent to the Carlisle Indian School in Pennsylvania. This was an idea that Crawford had actually suggested at the beginning of November, with the thought being that the school would turn Apache children into real Americans, which was, unfortunately, a common theme in the 19th century. Wilcox had attempted to select children on his own, but with no real connection to the Apache, they were unconvinced to send their children away. He managed to recruit a grand total of one child instead of the 30 that his boss wanted. Exasperated, he asked Crawford's subordinate for help, mainly because he and Crawford were no longer on speaking terms. The subordinate wisely said that he needed to run this up the flagpole, and Wilcox testily replied, quote, Tell Crawford, for God's sakes, to go ahead and get them. Get as many as he can. That Secretary Teller will be much obliged. I'm tired of this whole goddamn business having these Indians talking to me all day. They won't do anything I tell them, end quote. Gee, with that attitude, I wonder why. Just to show how much the Apache trusted Crawford over Wilcox, by the time the children left via train in January 1884, he had managed to recruit 52 children, including from the families of Bonito, Local, and Kaitene. And the kicker is, Wilcox still threw a hissy fit to his superiors about Crawford overstepping his bounds, though in his own testimony, he had admitted asking for help. The only thing he could point to is that Crawford hadn't prepared an itemized list in the formatting that the Interior Department liked. And just to keep the pettiness going, in December 1883, Crawford and Wilcox would have yet another run-in. A man arrived with a herd of horses from another army post that Crawford allowed to be housed at the quartermaster's corral in San Carlos. Wilcox's son-in-law, the reservation trader, liked the horses and offered to buy the herd, but completely low-balled the man on price seeing as he was the only one allowed to conduct business on the reservation. The man refused to sell to the trader, but instead sold them to the Apache scouts under Crawford. This again enraged Wilcox, who complained to his superiors, but made it sound like Crawford had allowed the sale to individual Apaches on the reservation, which was illegal, instead of to the Apache scouts, which was perfectly legal. Crawford easily set the record straight, but the feud just kept going on. One place where Crawford really did exceed his authority was the issue of beef for the reservation. Receiving complaints that the cows being furnished to the Apache were of poor quality, Crawford found that Wilcox and his men were not inspecting the cattle like they should have been, and that the animals being delivered were what he termed, quote, a miserable lot of scrawny cows, end quote. In inspecting the cattle and then rejecting them, Crawford really did exceed what he was allowed to do. Wilcox and Henry Hooker, the rancher supplying the beef, made a meal out of this, especially after Crawford turned down Hooker's offer to come to his ranch and select new cows. 
The captain had said that it really wasn't his jurisdiction, so he couldn't, and that set Hooker right off. And kind of reasonably so, because Crawford had already meddled and was now saying that it wasn't his jurisdiction. You couldn't just say the cows were no good, not accept them, and then refuse to come and get better ones. Already not a fan of the military, the rancher lobbed every insult he could find at both Crook and Crawford in a letter to the Commissioner of Indian Affairs. He wrote, quote, It will be to the benefit of the public and the interest of Indians on the reservation that the United States Army not be allowed within 100 miles of the reservation. I believe that Captain Crawford in command of San Carlos is incompetent for the position he holds and through malice and prejudice will abuse his official duties to accomplish a malicious end. End quote. Hooker will actually end his contract to supply beef to the reservation over this incident. By February 1884, Secretary Teller was sick of the complaints coming from the San Carlos Reservation and actually asked Robert Lincoln, Secretary of the War Department, to remove Crawford from his post. In response to the continual complaining from Wilcox and all these supposed insults over the past year, Crawford would call for a court of inquiry into his conduct, a board that, surprise, surprise, would completely exonerate him of any wrongdoing. But that's a little down the road. For now, I want to go back to December 1883. Because Wilcox was still so amazingly tone-deaf to the people on his reservation, many of the Chiricahua were anxious to find a new home that was away from both Wilcox's headquarters and the other bands that they weren't so friendly with. In December 1883, Kaitane and others had gone to find a nice remote spot to settle, and they all liked the area around Turkey Creek, which is southeast of where the community of White River is today. It was far from Wilcox, closer to the friendly White Mountain Bands, and at a higher elevation than the baking hot Gila River. It wasn't the ideal spot to farm, but there was some good acreage about 15 miles away along the east fork of the White River. Crawford was ready and eager to help them set up their own settlement, though Crook still had some doubts. He distrusted Kaitane, who was one of those asking to go, and he wanted to keep the Chiricahua down at San Carlos until Geronimo and Chato came in. Lieutenant Charles Gatewood, who was in charge of Fort Apache, also was vehemently against this plan, not wanting to have the Chiricahua in his backyard and fearing that things would quickly get out of hand. In fact, he told Crook that they would rue the day they allowed the Chiricahua to settle at Turkey Creek. Instead, he favored breaking up the Chiricahua tribal structure completely and planting family groups along various creeks to weaken them politically and cut down on their tendency to break out. This did not happen and, well, Gatewood was actually proved right in the end. But Turkey Creek would have to wait. It was still the middle of winter and, as any visitor to the White Mountains know, it snows a lot so the moon was postponed until after the spring thaw. In the meantime, both Crawford and Crook had one more giant pressing concern. Geronimo. Crook's detractors, of which there were many, had continued to pound him over the fact that the prototypical Apache renegade was still down in Mexico, months after the rest had been brought to heel. 
That's why, in December 1883, Crawford decided to try and rectify that situation. Remember that Geronimo's son, Chapo, had come up for the express purpose of making sure that things would be good for his father if he came to live at San Carlos again. A month must have been good enough time because Chapo was part of a delegation sent to find Geronimo and to finally, finally bring him in. This delegation also included Chief Chihuahua and two other Chiricahua that Geronimo would trust. Chapo originally didn't want to be met by armed soldiers at the border, fearing that his father's wary nature would cause him to flee, but asked that he could take Geronimo directly to Eagle Creek, where the old man wished to live. This was something Crawford couldn't accept, and he finally got Chapo to agree to being met by representatives from the army once they had come back into Arizona. With this matter settled, the delegation made their way south, but were surprised to run into a group of Chiricahua under a leader named Zele, who was even then coming up with 13 Apache after having broken off from Chato and Geronimo. Now, this was encouraging for Crawford at San Carlos, who had not been expecting this party at all. And they also brought the news that they expected Chato and Geronimo to come in in maybe mid-January or so. This estimate turned out to be about six weeks off, as it wouldn't be until February 7th, 1884, that Chato's party of some 20 people made it to the San Bernardino Ranch. The leader admitted that one of the reasons for his delay is that the Mexicans had struck his camp after Zelly had left, so they had waited for things to quiet down so they could go raid to recover the stock they had lost. And this was a concerning thing for the army officers meeting the Chiricahua at the border. They had not failed to notice that each group that was coming to San Carlos was driving with it a decent-sized herd of animals, all of which had Mexican brands. This was something that was going to have to be ironed out between the army and Mexican officials if the peace was to be kept at all. Chato also emphasized the fact that many family members were still being held by the Mexican government, something that made his heart sick and delayed him from thinking about coming into the United States again. There was very little army officers could do about it, but they promised to try and secure their release if at all possible. So Chato and his group would make it to San Carlos on February 28th. Three days earlier, the even bigger fish arrived at the border. Geronimo, at last, had come. The wily leader had left his camp in Mexico on January 26th and slowly started drifting north with a group of seven men and 22 women and children. And of course, there was a large herd of 135 head of cattle secured during a recent raid on a nearby ranch. Geronimo and his company would meet Lieutenant Davis at a place called Skeleton Canyon, northeast of Douglas. He told Davis to, quote, Tell General Crook we have left the mountains and are going to San Carlos as we told him we would when we surrendered to him last summer, end quote. That was probably a fat lot of comfort for Crook, who had expected Geronimo to come in maybe a month or two after the rest. As it was, the leader was a full seven months late. Still, Geronimo was there now, so the only thing to do was get him to the reservation as quickly as possible. Davis favored a shorter route, but Geronimo wanted to take it slow. Not only because he wasn't in a hurry to go back to the reservation, 
but also because he didn't want to work all the fat off of his ill-gotten cows. There was also the matter of making sure they had enough grass to eat along the way. So a longer route through the Sulphur Springs Valley was planned that would allow enough fodder for the cows to eat as they made their way toward their destination. However, since the Chiricahua Reservation had been wiped off the map, the area had started to be populated by American ranchers, and Davis was worried that this might cause more than a few problems. It turns out that he was partially right about this. While stopped at Sulphur Springs Ranch, Davis was approached by two Americans who identified themselves as Customs Officer Johnny Clark out of Tombstone and his assistant, William Howland. From their point of view, Geronimo was smuggling cows into the United States without paying customary border tariffs. So they approached Davis to have him help them confiscate the entire herd. Davis, of course, knew that Geronimo and the men with him were armed with Winchester rifles, and they would definitely put up a fight if anyone was to attempt to take their cattle. He bought some time by saying that the customs agents should hold off until he had gotten orders from Crook. So he sent a man off to the nearest telegraph station and said that he should have an answer by the next day. Still fearing, though, that the men would just try and take the herd, Davis turned to Lieutenant Bo Blake, who had ridden in from Fort Bowie to help escort Geronimo and his company to the reservation. The two army officers decided that maybe they needed to resort to some cunning and guile to extricate themselves from the sticky situation. So Blake produced a bottle of scotch whiskey and invited these two hard-working custom agents, nay, public servants, to join him in a toast to their dedication to duty. The scotch flowed very freely, with Blake allowing the two thirsty men to drink the lion's share of the bottle. Good and liquored up, the two men naturally drifted off to sleep that night, while the army officers set their plan into motion. They sent for Geronimo immediately, and through a scout explained the situation to him. Sweeney notes that it was a very tense moment as the two officers were in the middle of a circle comprised of scouts and Geronimo's warriors, with both sides armed to the teeth. This was just the sort of treachery that Geronimo would seize upon as an excuse to vanish once again. Davis did his best to explain the situation, and his solution for it, that they take the cattle and as quietly as possible sneak away into the night. Perhaps a little unsurprisingly, Geronimo was emphatically against this plan, his reaction was to dare the custom officials to take his cattle. Davis recounted that Geronimo's words were something along the lines of, quote, If these men thought that they could take his cattle away from him, let them try it tomorrow. He was going back to bed. End quote. And that's when Davis switched tactics, trying instead to play up Geronimo's ego. It was a silly plan after all, and it probably wouldn't work. I mean, all those cattle moving would surely wake the custom officers up. But, Davis continued, wouldn't it be a great joke if they could pull it off? The lieutenant reported that Geronimo almost smiled at this suggestion, and at that point, he knew he was on board. Davis agreed to stay at the camp and to be there when the custom officers woke up. In the meantime, Blake would lead Geronimo, his company, and the cows to San Carlos. Tickled with the idea of playing the white eyes for fools, the company managed to get away while the two drunk custom officials kept on snoring. 
The next morning, the men were flabbergasted at the disappearance of the Apache and the cows. As Davis wrote, quote, The wiki-ups stood as they had left them. The fresh meat they had jerked was lying on the bushes, the campfire smoldering and not an Indian in sight. End quote. When asked what had happened to everyone, Davis just shrugged his shoulders and said he had no idea. Realizing that they had been duped, the two men were actually more impressed than angry. They returned to Tombstone, confessing that Geronimo had played a really slick trick on the both of them. Davis was able to meet up with Blake and the company later, and together on March 16th, 1884, they were able to officially turn over Geronimo to Captain Crawford at San Carlos. The funny coda to this story is that this herd of cattle would actually be confiscated from Geronimo, seeing as that they all had Mexican brands and were the subject of correspondence then shooting back and forth between the war and state departments and the Mexican government. It took the intervention of Bonito to make sure there wouldn't be any trouble, but eventually Geronimo relinquished. He was allowed to keep the horses and mules, but all the cattle were sold at public auction on June 26, 1884, and the $1,762.50 raised by it were sent down to Mexico to repay the rightful owners. Now, we're going to leave things here for this week, but join me next time as Geronimo, Caetane, and others try to get used to living at San Carlos. But between Caetane's rebellious streak, Geronimo's distrust and paranoia, and a whole lot of moonshine, relations between the Chiricahua and the Americans will deteriorate once again. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've just listened to the 100th episode of AZ, The History of Arizona. Here's to many more to come. Goodbye. Goodbye.